Section 15 of The Vegetable Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Denny Sayers. The Vegetable Garden by Ida Dandridge Bennett. Chapter 10 Root Vegetables, Part 2. Parsnips which so welcomely supplement the late winter or early spring bill of fare, are one of the easily raised root vegetables, requiring little room for culture, and yielding bountifully for the space and time devoted to them. Like the carrot, they are an ornamental feature of the garden, and may be grown to edge rows or beds of other vegetables, if desired. They should occupy a prominent position in the garden, as their growth is lower than most other garden crops, and the beauty of the fern-like leaves makes them attractive at all times. They have not the bright color of the parsnip, being much darker in foliage, but they offset that vegetable and contrast beautifully with the red foliage of the beets. They are one of the earliest vegetables to be started in the spring, and so are out of the way before the main crops must be gotten into the ground, which is a distinct advantage. The seed should be sown in drills, like the carrot, making the drills a little farther apart, about fifteen inches, and dropping the seed as evenly and sparsely in the rows as possible. The seed should be planted about one-half of an inch deep, and the earth pressed down above it. The soil should be rich and deep, and the after-cultivation thorough and constant. As soon as the seed has germinated, and the little plants large enough to distinguish, all weeds should be removed from between and each side of the rows, the cultivator taking care of those between the rows. When the plants are three or four inches high, thin out to stand six inches apart in the row. The plants pulled up may be used to plant additional rows, or to fill in any vacant spaces in the present rows. While the quality of the roots are much improved by leaving in the ground over winter, enough for immediate use may be stored in damp sand or earth in the cellar, or they may be dug and piled in pits in the ground, and covered with a mound of earth and boards to shed rain. But the cellar will be found more convenient, as in case of severe weather, it will be found almost as difficult to get into the heaps as to dig the roots from the open ground. The best variety to plant is the large sugar or hollow crown, and one ounce of seed will plant one hundred feet of drill. Directions for Cooking Parsnips Boiled Parsnips Wash, scrape, and split them. Put them in a pot of boiling water. Add a little salt and boil till quite tender, which will be in from two or three hours, according to their size. Dry them in a cloth when done, and pour melted butter or white sauce over them in the dish. Serve them with any sort of boiled meat or with salt codfish. Parsnips are very good baked or stewed with meat. Fried Parsnips Boil tender in salted water. Scrape, cut into long slices, dredge with flour. Fry in hot lard or drippings, 
or in butter and lard mixed until quite brown. Drain on a wire sieve and serve. Stewed Parsnips After washing and scraping the parsnips, cut into slices about half an inch thick. Put them in a saucepan of boiling water, containing just enough to barely cover them. Add a tablespoonful of butter, pepper, and salt, and cover closely. Cook them until the water has cooked away, watching carefully and stirring often to prevent burning, until they are soft. When they are done, they will be of a creamy, light straw color, and deliciously sweet, retaining all the goodness of the vegetable. Parsnip Fritters Boil four or five parsnips. When tender, take off the skins and mash them fine. Add to them a teaspoonful of wheat flour and a beaten egg. Put a tablespoonful of lard or beef drippings in a frying pan over the fire. Add to it a saltspoonful of salt. When boiling hot, put in the parsnips which have been molded into small cakes with a spoon. When one side is a delicate brown, turn the other. When both sides are done, put them on a dish, and a very little of the fat in which they were fried poured over them, and serve hot. These resemble very closely the taste of the salsify, or vegetable oyster, and by many will be preferred. Or the parsnips, flour, and egg may be shaped in the hands into small cones, and fried to a delicate brown and hot fat. Dipping first in beaten egg, and then in fine bread crumbs, will make a more elaborate and attractive dish. Potatoes There is probably no crop grown that the husbandman approaches with so little hesitation as the potato. But that this confidence is often misplaced is evidenced by the mass of poor and even unsightly potatoes which crowd our markets. It is not an uncommon practice to devote the refuse of the potato bins to the spring planting, yet no vegetable is more susceptible of improvement by judicious selection of seed than the potato. The selection of seed potatoes should be made not the last thing before planting, but at the time of the gathering of the crop in the fall, providing, of course, that one wishes to grow the same kind of potatoes a second year, and that the quality of the present crop justifies the selection of potatoes for seed therefrom. In selecting potatoes from seed, the choice should be from those hills which have produced best, both as to size of tubers and the number of tubers in a hill, rather than from the finest potatoes, both as to size and symmetry. In the former selection, you get pedigree and precedent, and may anticipate a perpetuation of the good qualities in the succeeding year's crop. All scabby or misshapen tubers should be rejected, nor should seed be used from a crop that has given scabby tubers, though the tubers selected may be free from this defect. Where scabby tubers exist, the cause should be distinctly recognized, whether the fault is in the seed, in the soil, or in the presence of too green manure. Potatoes should not be planted on land newly fertilized with fresh manure. Where the land has had many successive croppings, 
and must be manured heavily in order to restore sufficient fertility for the production of a crop, the fertilizing should be done the preceding autumn, or if that is impossible, as early in the spring as possible, February being far better than March. Preferably the manuring should precede fall ploughing. Sod land is best for the growing of potatoes, and if this has been manured the previous fall, it should be in a good condition for growing a good crop of smooth potatoes. Do not plant potatoes on land, which produced scabby the previous year. Early potatoes may be planted as soon as the ground can be put in condition in the spring, but for the main or winter crop, late planting is usually more satisfactory. For one thing, these later planted potatoes are less troubled with the potato beetle, and fewer cultivations are required to keep down the weeds. No one should undertake the growing of potatoes unless they have sufficient energy to keep down the weeds, as they require little handwork, and one or two hoeings will fit them for work with horse or hand cultivator. Potatoes should never be banked or hilled up at the beginning of the season. When this is done at the start, it is practically impossible to keep control of the weeds. It is better to cultivate on the level, either planting far enough apart in rows to allow the running the cultivator each way, or they may be planted in rows three feet apart and a foot apart in the rows, and covering from three to four inches deep according to the nature of the soil. Three inches if the soil is heavy and cold, but four inches in light sandy soil. Phosphates are very valuable fertilizers for potatoes, and produce very much smoother tubers than where it is not applied. The most economical method of using is to scatter a tablespoonful in each hill, distributing it over a foot or two of surface. Flour of sulphur in the hills will entirely prevent the presence of scab in the potatoes, and is a more satisfactory method than the previous treatment of the seed by corrosive sublimate, formaldehyde, or other poisons. In the case of potato beetle and its ravages, one should use the ounce of prevention and watch for the first appearance of the mature beetle and its eggs. Where there is but a small planting of potatoes, it will be practicable to hand-pick the vine, killing all bugs and removing all eggs, which will be found a yellow mass on the underside of the leaves. If these are entirely removed at their first appearance, little further trouble will be experienced, unless a careless neighbor also grows potatoes, in which case one's best efforts may prove abortive. Once the beetles have gained a footing, the only remedy is Paris green, either as a dust mixed with plaster, in the proportion of a teaspoonful of the poison to a quart of lime, sifted from a sifting box with quite small holes, over the plants when wet with dew or rain, or with a solution of the poison about a teaspoonful to three gallons of water. This may be used by means of a brush broom dipped in the solution and shaken over the plants, or by means of a spraying pump. In the latter case, a much stronger solution may be used, as the spray is so fine a very small quantity of liquid is deposited. Should rain follow the spraying, it will be necessary to repeat 
as soon as the weather clears. Potatoes should be dug as soon as the tubers are ripe and the tops dead. Left in the ground, especially in wet weather, they are liable to start new growth, which injures them. Late potatoes, however, may be left longer, but must be dug before the ground freezes. A bright day is best for digging the tubers, and if possible the ground should be dry, in order that the earth may not adhere to the tubers, and so they may be picked up and stored as soon as possible after digging. Potatoes should not be allowed to lie uncovered, as this turns them green, but should be covered with anything available, old carpets, sacking, straw, or fodder, anything which will exclude light. There are many excellent varieties of potatoes, but it must be remembered that there is as great a difference in the flavor of potatoes as any other vegetable, and what may be entirely acceptable and palatable to one may prove very unsatisfactory to another, but it is universally agreed that a mealy, white-flesh potato is the ideal one. A potato free from black spots and hollows, and one which will keep well into the following spring, is also desirable. For these last qualities, there is probably no better potato grown than the Adirondack, it keeping well until the middle of June, and cooking mealy and white up to planting time. It is exceptionally free from spot or blemish, but, unfortunately, is sadly lacking in flavor, being especially unsatisfactory when fried. It is a profitable potato to grow for market, however, as its excellent keeping quality makes it a favorite of the dealers. Vick's Perfection and Carmen Number no. 2 have given excellent satisfaction in my garden, the flesh being white, mealy, and of most excellent flavor. Early Rose and Early Ohio are both excellent potatoes for the market or home garden, and there are many other good varieties, each locality having its favorite. When in doubt as to which variety to plant, it will be well to procure a peck or two, or more kinds, and test them by cooking in several different ways. Directions for Cooking Potatoes It may seem superfluous to give recipes for cooking so staple an article of food as the potato, yet it must be conceded that their appetizing and tasteful preparation is by no means universal. Even a good boiled potato, its simplest form, is rare and fried potatoes, at their best, are conspicuous by their absence. It may not be a matter of general information that in the spring, when the quality of potatoes has deteriorated, they are liable to show dark spots at the eyes when boiled. This may be prevented by the addition of a cupful of milk to the water in which they are boiled. THE PERFECT FRIED POTATO the frying and serving of potatoes is quite as particular an operation as serving baked potatoes, which all know must be eaten the moment they are done. Fried potatoes should never go on the fire until within a few moments of the time of serving a meal. Never set them on the back of the range until time to cook them, letting them slowly dry up until the outsides are hard and tough. Rather, should they be cut in dice, or sliced as preferred, and the frying pan placed on the stove until hot, 
when sufficient butter or drippings for frying, together with salt and pepper to taste, should be put in and allowed to get hot, when the potatoes should be added and cooked a good brown as quickly as possible. Cooked in this way, they will be crisp, but not hard and tough, and should be served immediately on a hot dish. To have the fried potato at its best, one should boil medium-sized new potatoes and remove them from the water as soon as done, allowing the steam to pass off, so that they may be dry and mealy, when they should be cut in dice and fried at once in hot butter or drippings. They should not be allowed to grow cold between the operation of boiling and frying, and should be served at once on hot dishes. Potato Souffle This makes an excellent lunch or supper dish and is suitable for company teas. To two cupfuls of cold mashed potatoes, add half a cupful of milk, a pinch of salt, a tablespoonful of butter, two tablespoonfuls of flour, and two eggs, beaten to a froth. Mix the whole until thoroughly light. Put into a baking dish, spread a little butter over the top, and bake a golden brown. The quality depends upon very thoroughly beating the eggs, so that the potato will remain light, like sponge cake. Potato Puffs Prepare the potatoes as for souffle. While hot, shape in balls about the size of an egg, have a tin sheet well buttered, and place the balls on it. As soon as all are done, brush over with beaten egg, brown in the oven. When done, slip a knife under them and slide upon a hot platter. Garnish with parsley and serve immediately. Lyonnaise Potatoes Place in a frying pan one onion sliced fine and a tablespoonful of butter and a tablespoonful of fine cut parsley. Cook until the onion is tender. Remove the onion and add the potatoes, which should have previously been prepared by cutting into dice. Cover the pan and allow the potatoes to heat through, but not cook or brown. Remove the lid and add a teacupful, or less, of cream, and allow it to boil, but not cook, and serve at once in a hot baker or tureen. The secret of success with creamed potatoes is not to allow them to cook in the cream. Scalloped Potatoes Slice raw potatoes and lay in water till ready to use. Place a slice of salt pork in the bottom of a baking dish. Wipe the potatoes dry and place a layer over the pork. Season with salt and pepper and continue to add potatoes and seasoning in alternate layers until the dish is full. Cover the top with slices of very thin salt pork and place in the oven and bake until the potatoes are done. Cold boiled potatoes may be substituted if desired and require less time to cook. Scalloped Potatoes Kentucky Style Peel and slice raw potatoes thin, the same as for frying. Butter an earthen dish, put in a layer of potatoes, and season with salt, pepper, butter, and a bit of onion, chopped fine, if liked. Sprinkle over a little flour. Now put another layer of potatoes and seasoning, and continue placing alternate layers of potatoes and seasoning 
until the dish is full. Just before placing in the oven, pour over from a pint to a quart of hot milk, according to the quantity of potatoes used. Bake three quarters of an hour. Cold boiled potatoes may be used instead of raw, if preferred. French fried potatoes. Peel and slice in sections, as apples are cut for pies, laying them in water until needed. Heat a small, shallow kettle of lard to the smoking point, but be careful that it does not scorch. Dry the potatoes thoroughly, and drop in the hot lard until a delicate brown. They should puff up very light and plump. Remove from the fire and drain on brown wrapping paper before a bright fire. Sprinkle lightly with salt, and, if that flavor is preferred, a little celery salt also, and serve at once on a hot dish. These are delicious and entirely suitable for company at breakfasts, lunches, or teas. Potato Croquettes Take two cupfuls of cold mashed potatoes, season with a pinch of salt, pepper, and a tablespoonful of butter, also a pinch of celery salt, if liked. Beat up the whites of two eggs and work all together thoroughly. Make into small balls about the size of walnuts. Dip in the beaten yolks of eggs, which should be seasoned with salt and pepper, and roll in fine cracker or bread crumbs. Fry in deep fat until a delicate brown, and drain on a wire sieve, and serve very hot on a folded napkin laid on a hot dish. Potato Fillets Pare and slice the potatoes thin. Cut them in long strips or fillets, about a quarter of an inch square, and as long as the potatoes will admit. Keep them in cold water until wanted, then wipe dry, and drop into deep lard at the smoking point, and cook until a fine, delicate brown. Some cooks remove them from the fat and drain when partly done, allowing the fat to heat up again when the potatoes are returned to the fat and fried until done. But if the potatoes are wiped dry and the lard at the proper temperature and a hot fire under the kettle, this is seldom necessary. Drain before a hot fire on a wire sieve or brown wrapping paper. Sprinkle with salt and, if liked, a very little dust of celery salt, and serve on a hot dish. Saratoga, string, and similar potatoes are prepared in the same way, the only difference being in the manner of cutting and the fact that Saratoga and similar thin potatoes are equally good cold and may be prepared in quantities and kept in a dry place to be used as needed. If wished warm, a few moments in a hot oven will render them very palatable. End of section 15